0: Good morning. Today we are studying Romans. We are starting chapter 16, the final chapter in the book of Romans, and we have what everybody looks forward to when they come to their Bible study. You start your plan, your Bible reading plan, and the thing you're looking most forward to is what? Lists of names. The best thing, the thing everybody looks forward to, the thing that nobody just skips over when they're reading their Bible, right? Everybody here is so spiritual. You just read through every single name, no matter what, public school or not. Can't pronounce it? Doesn't matter. You you read the names, right? Amon's like, yes, I do. <laughs> Good boy. Uh, the rest of us, however, <laughs> at least once in a while, we're tempted to skip those names, right? Or to just have our eyes glaze over as we go through them. I remember when I first became a Christian. I the first time I read a Bible. Uh, I got started in the book of Matthew. I had this sense that I just needed to get to know Jesus, so I was going to start in Matthew. And anybody remember what the first chapter of Matthew is? It's a genealogy. It's a list of names. Like off to, like, I had no idea. I some of those names were familiar, right? Anybody ever had the experience where they've gone back after some time and they've read the genealogy in the first chapter of Matthew and been like, wait, wait, wait. Whoa. Whoa. Maybe that happened to you uh, just now, like if you just started a new Bible reading plan and you started in Matthew chapter one, you know, you like had an Old and New Testament reading. And after all of last semester with Ben and Nathan going through the faith of our father stuff, you really got to know some of those people in Jesus's bloodline and you have, whoa, it's crazy. What kind of people are in Jesus's bloodline? Some pretty ugly people, Right? You've got Gentiles, you've got a prostitute, you've got incest and adultery. Some really, really wild things in Jesus' bloodline. And then you stop and think about it and you think, well, why is that? What's that about? Does that have anything to teach us? And what does it have to teach us? Jesus came and got low. He got really low. There was nobody that he couldn't associate with, even in his own bloodline. Nobody was too low for him. There was no mess, too messy for him. That's a beautiful thing. But it comes as we study the scriptures and get to know them well. And names, then lists of names and genealogies can suddenly preach. You could get a lot of sermons, actually, out of Matthew's genealogy and what that means that Jesus was willing to walk into that mess, that God took on that mess. Today, we have a different list of names, and by God's grace, it's going to preach. These are actual people who are just being commended by the Apostle Paul, ordinary, everyday people, and their names are in the Bible now forever. Why? Mostly because they were workers, they were servants. There are people like you and me who just found their place in the church and they gave their gifts to the church, they went to work, and they were loved and appreciated for it. Ordinary, everyday people, not people like Paul, apostles traveling all over the place, just our family. Just the family of God, doing family life together. And all these people that we're going to read about today are in heaven with Jesus now. And someday you may have a chance to meet them. So today is a day to celebrate ordinary people. It's a day to celebrate humble, hardworking people who work and serve the church and to step back and think and be grateful for the people who work and serve us. And ask the question, am I one of those people? Am I the kind of person who, you know, if Paul was writing to the church at Evansville, he would list me and commend me, what do I have to do to be that kind of person? How could I be that kind of person? Okay? So we're going to go through the names. We're just going to open them up and talk about them. And there's some really cool things that I think uh, you'll see as we do. So Romans 15, just be, or sorry, 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea. That you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Okay, so we start with Phoebe. Phoebe is famous. Phoebe's famous because that word servant is literally deaconess, and so people like to talk about Phoebe, and like to fight about Phoebe. Phoebe's from the church at Centrea. that's where she serves. Somewhere close to Corinth. Well, don't worry, we'll come back to that deaconess thing later. Okay? She's from somewhere close to Corinth. Okay, Corinth is where we think Paul is writing from. And Paul is commending Phoebe to the church at Rome. He wants the church to welcome her, which means that Paul is sending her to Rome with this letter. We don't know how many people Paul's sending to Rome, but he's sending Phoebe. And so it's very possible or maybe even likely that Phoebe's the one who's in charge of the letter. Taking it from Corinth all the way to Rome. Okay, which means that she's trusted by Paul. She's trusted a lot. She's a servant of the church. And what do we know about her service to the church? Well, what we know is that she's a patron. That means that she supports people financially. That's her main gift to the church. She supports Paul, she supports ministries and missions and churches. She's a patron. So she's probably wealthy. She's certainly very generous. What we think is that she's probably a widow who inherited a fortune and uses that fortune to support the work of God's people. So Paul sends her ahead to Rome, and somehow, for some reason, she's going to have work to do when she gets there. We don't know what that work is, but Paul her to the church and says, hey, listen, when she gets there, whatever she needs You help her. Whatever she needs to do, just get it done. So maybe she's going to go and she's going to help sort of organize the funding and the provisioning for sending Paul on to Spain, like we talked about last week. She just knows Paul. She knows what he needs. She knows how to organize people. She's got the money and resources herself as a patroness to help make some things happen. She knows how to get things done. So Paul's like, Look, you want to help send me to Spain? You listen to Phoebe, you do what Phoebe says you make sure that you help her. Or maybe she's just really good at seeing problems and solving problems and finding ways to improve things and is going to have her eye on ways to be helpful to the church at Rome when she gets there. Paul's like, just listen, this woman's great. When she comes, greet her. And if she says, hey, you should make some changes, you should do something different, you listen to her. She's just one of those women, one way or another, right? We know people like that. All our signs and welcome tables and graphics and things like that, the website was all designed and built out by Megan. She's not even in here. She's in the nursery, right? It was built out by Megan, the curtains, everything. That's Megan. She's one of those people that when we plant a church, when we plant our first church, we will send Megan to the church. We'll say we're sending Ben, but we'll be sending Megan to the church. And we'll make sure that the church is doing a good job being hospitable and greeting people But the signs are clear and in good places. The website is clear and good. Megan may end up designing a lot of that stuff. And we'll send Megan and we'll say, listen, if Megan says you need to change things, just change things. Just do what she says. She's proven herself a good, faithful, capable, trustworthy servant of the church. That's what Phoebe is. Okay? So that's Phoebe. Is that you? Or could that be you? Moving on, greet Prisca, or elsewhere in scripture, Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Okay, so Priscilla and Aquila are a really cool couple. They're a married couple. We see them pop up all over the place in Scripture. They're originally from Rome. They got kicked out of Rome when Emperor Claudius just, like, banned all the Jews and told all the Jews they had to leave. Okay, they ended up in Corinth. And that's where they met the Apostle Paul, in Corinth. And Paul, when he went to Corinth to plant the church there, stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. And so Paul got to know them well in Corinth, and when he left Corinth, they traveled with him. They traveled with Paul all over the place, and they ended up traveling with Paul to Ephesus. And when they were in Ephesus, they were the couple that pulled aside this young preacher that was becoming famous in the church for his powerful preaching. His name was Apollos. And everybody was talking about this convert named Apollos, who was suddenly preaching with power and strength, and people were being converted. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they're hearing Apollos preaching, and they're like, he's really great, but he's getting some things wrong. And so they pull him aside and they have him over and they teach Apollos more clearly the gospel so that his preaching and teaching is refined and improved. And he's not teaching falsely. This is Priscilla and Aquila. They're mentioned in several books of the Bible. And they're just this really awesome, godly, strong, married couple. They're kind of rock stars. And now, Claudius is dead. The ban on Jews at Rome is gone. And so they've made their way back home to Rome. So they're there. And Paul knows they're there. And so he wants to greet them. And so, of course, two, being an awesome ministry couple that they are, that church meets in their home. So greet them and greet the church that meets at their home. Okay, so the way that this would work is Rome's a great big city, right? And nobody had cars. And so you're working to build this. Now, some people had really great big houses and a whole lot of people, like hundreds of people could gather there. But the church would just meet wherever it could. Okay? And so you can imagine Rome being as big as Rome is and just think about Evansville without cars, right? How many of you are making it here this morning if you didn't have a car? Because we'd have to do some, some things differently, right? Okay, so the church at Rome had pockets and places where they would gather. One of them was at Priscilla and Aquila's home. So here's this ministry couple, they traveled with Paul. They helped teach the gospel to this mighty preacher, Apollos. Now they're hosting a church in their home, in Rome. They're generous, they're involved. And they were also more than that. They weren't just generous and involved, they had courage. They were the kinds of people who risked their necks for the the Apostle Paul, and that's rare. Courage and companionship are really important gifts that you can give to the church and to her leaders. And Paul's ministry was often a very lonely one. He didn't have a lot of companionship. And when things got tough, there was not a lot of courage to spare. He was constantly abandoned. And he's often writing the churches and asking them to pray for his courage and boldness, which means what? It means that he often felt very weak and afraid, especially when he was alone. So Priscilla and Aquila are this couple that were there when very few other people were. They weren't afraid of being associated with the apostle Paul, they were afraid or ashamed of being associated with God's truth. They just had courage. And we don't know what happened, right? We don't know what they did to risk their necks for Paul. We just know that that's what happened and that's how he describes it. And so they're special to him and he loves them. And the truth is they were probably just friends. Aquila actually shared the same profession as Paul. He was a tent maker. Not like, oh, we say that, you know, I have a tent making ministry, it just means I have a a part-time job or a job that allows me to do a minute. Aquila actually made tents, like Paul. So they actually shared the exact same trade and vocation. So when they traveled together, they could work together. They had a lot in common. And because of the nature of their trade, they had the flexibility to go, to get, pack up and go, the ability to travel and make money wherever they went. And they had the willingness to make that kind of sacrifice. Okay, so Phoebe, she serves the church with her money and with her service. Priscilla and Aquila serve the church with teaching and time and flexibility and courage and with something else that neither Paul nor Phoebe probably could give which is their marriage. They're a couple. And we don't see that kind of teamwork often in the New Testament. And it's not because the early church wasn't full of godly, strong marriages. It's because we're just following around the kind of people that are out doing things on the front lines a lot of the time. And the kind of people that can be out on the front lines doing things are generally not families, generally single people, single men like Paul who can just pack up and go and be flexible and just travel. 20 miles, that he can't t- travel 20 miles a day and go city to city if you've got a wife and kids. It's just not what your ministry is going to look like. Paul's a single guy, he can do single guy things. But Priscilla and Aquila actually had the flexibility and the freedom and the willingness to do some of those same kinds of things. And part of that was probably just they were already displaced from Rome, like that was their home. They're already just sort of refugees on the road. And so, why not? Why not pack up and keep going? Why not bounce from Corinth to Ephesus? I'm sure they made many sacrifices. They also brought a lot to the table. Paul ministered and worked as a single man, and he never hesitated to minister to anybody about anything, and he wasn't shy. But even a single older man has his limitations, right? There are benefits to being married in ministry. Priscilla and Aquila brought that to the table for the church and for Paul when he traveled with them. Some people can do ministry on their own like Paul. Some can't. I can't. My ministry wouldn't be what it is without Amanda. I am who I am because of her. My sermons wouldn't be what they are without her. The faith and courage that I have wouldn't be what it is without her. Nothing would be the same. We talk about you guys. We pray for you guys. She reminds me of things going on in your home or sometimes lets me know things that are going on in your home, in your marriage, with your kids, with your families. She has insight and perspective that I need. This past week in our staff meeting, this is not abnormal. Uh, at one point in our staff meeting, I'm on the phone with Amanda. Nathan's on the phone with Meredith. We're talking about you guys and trying to figure things out. That's ministry together, right? Priscilla and Aquila were like that. They brought a lot to the table. Every church needs godly, strong, experienced married couples. Couples who have seen some life, who have suffered, who have grown, who've weathered some storms together, who served together who serve as examples to younger couples and to single men and women, who serve as a safe haven when things get hard or rough, the house that you just sort of can go to when things get bad. When I was in college, I uh, was up at school in Bloomington. I adopted a family, and I would go over to their house on Monday nights. There were Jean and Carla Pemberton, and Jean's now gone on to be with the Lord, but Carla still, what, 15, 20 years later, prays, for us, she actually came and visited us one day. You might not have noticed her, but she came and worshiped with us. When Amanda and I first got married, we spent time in the homes of older families in the church. That was a huge help to us. Priscilla and Aquila clearly had an open home for ministry. Where the church meets at their house, right? They're hospitable. They're probably the kinds of people that you just want to be around to go and to sort of soak in the warmth and the strength and the health and happiness of their home. Is that you? Could it be? Is that something that you could aspire toward and work toward? Okay. We'll keep going. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. You see, he's the first convert in all of Asia. I don't see any, many Asian faces looking around. But think about how cool that is. Think about how cool that is. When you're doing anything new or anything special, the f- firsts, firsts are important. Firsts are special. You married folks, how many of you remember your first kiss? How, how, how many of you remember, uh, man? how many of you remember the first time you saw your bride on the wedding day? Just Bart. He's, he's the only one that... I actually paid attention to Anna when she was coming down the aisle. The rest of you were just like in a daze. This past week, Amanda and I were hanging out. We were actually, we were lying in bed, and she was looking past me. I wanted to know what she was looking at. She was looking at a photograph of our wedding, and uh, we started talking about it. Like everybody, our wedding was a whirlwind and a blur, and there's not much to remember. Um, but the high point of that day is the same for both of us. It was a bit of calm in the midst of the storm, and that's when we had our first look. And it wasn't when she started coming down the aisle. We did something together beforehand. It was just us alone in the sanctuary of the church that we grew up in. It was really sweet. It was really cute. It was a really beautiful moment where we could just sort of step outside of the apparatus of the wedding and the chaos and everything that was going on, and just be us. There are a lot of firsts that are special in our lives. Kids, first words, first steps, first day of school, first day of college maybe, their wedding days. We're a young church. We're still experiencing a lot of firsts and they're all special the first Bible study in the living room of our home. Our first service right over here in the community room on Easter Sunday. It's even hard to remember sometimes that we were ever in that little room. Our first service here as a church in this gym, our first baptisms. Many firsts are special moments and they're special because they involve people you love and they involve work, and they involve sacrifice, and sometimes they involve a lot of pain to get to those moments. A lot of uncertainty came before. For us, this is the first church that we've planted, and we, we've not done this before. In three short years, we've had a lot of firsts. But imagine the life of the Apostle Paul. City to city, planting church after church. Constantly traveling, constantly giving his heart to new people, trusting that God's going to work through him to change lives, investing in people, and then having to leave for one reason or another. Maybe he's being kicked out of the city or run out on a rail. Maybe it's just like, I've got my leaders in place and it's time for me to move on. We see how hard it is. We see him when he leaves the church at Ephesus just weeping with them men crying. They've lived their lives together. You can imagine the pain and the suffering and the fear and the anxiety and the uncertainty. You show up to a new place. So each of those, in each of those places, you can also imagine that the firsts, the firsts were special. And that's who Eponidas is. The first convert in all of Asia. He's special. He's beloved. Think about how young and small and uncertain and how exciting something like that is. Think about the world today, 2,000 years later, not knowing what was going to come downstream. It's cool. You can see why Paul calls him his beloved. He's special. And for some reason, he's in Rome. So Paul's greeting them. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Okay, so here's Mary. She just gets that brief mention. She's worked hard for you. We don't know what she's done. All we know is she's worked hard. And she's done it to serve the church at Rome and to serve the people there. There are many people this morning who worked hard For you. For you. You don't often see them. Their names don't often get called out in the service. They're here every Sunday, making sure we have coffee, coffee, making sure our signs are set up, making sure the words on the slides are right, making sure the sound works and the chairs and the platform are right. All of this happens because people work hard for you. And I'm not one of them. Uh, And I'm glad I don't have to be. I'm glad that there are those of you that will work hard for me so that I can be focused on just being ready to preach. They're leading you in worship, collecting connection cards, watching the kids in the nursery, teaching your kids right now in children's church. Don't take for granted all the people who work hard for you. Especially your pastors and their wives who love you and care for you and pray for you. It's a gift. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before before me. Okay, now, Andronicus and Junia are fun. We have no idea who they are. We don't know. And it's more fun because their names are androgynous. Most names are just going to be really clearly masculine or feminine. Both Andronicus and Junia could be men or women. So we could have two men who are a ministry team, we could have another married couple, we could have two women. We don't know, not for sure. What we do know is that they're kinsmen of Paul, which at the very least makes them Jews, that they're Paul's fellow prisoners, and that they're well-known to the apostles or among the apostles, but they're well-known. They've been Christians for longer than Paul has. People know who they are. They've been around. And they've suffered for the gospel. They've suffered with Paul. If you've studied much of the Apostle Paul's life, what do you know about him? You know that prison is not a new thing, right? Prison's a common thing for him. And what happens when he goes to prison? He's often abandoned and left alone. That's just his life. It's just a very lonely, difficult, hard life. Here as he writes to the church at Rome, though, it doesn't seem so lonely. It's sort of like uh, Paul's army is gathering in Rome. It would feel very much to me, if I were Paul, like God really is preparing Rome as a launch pad to go into Spain. Like, man, all my people are just like there. All of them. I don't even understand why. Like, why is Eponidas there? I don't know, but he's there. Like, why are Andronicus and Junia there? Why are Priscilla and Aquila there? Why, like my people, why are they, but they're there. Andronicus and Junia are there. And what we know is that like Priscilla and Aquila, they're the kinds of people that are loyal and faithful. And they didn't shy away from Paul or Jesus when the gospel came under fire. Okay, they were willing to go to prison for Jesus. So here's a question. How far are you willing to go for Jesus? What will this next year hold? What will the future hold? It's not getting easier to be a Christian in America. It's not getting safer. You need to count the cost and you need to ask the question. You don't want to be like those who abandoned Paul and you don't want to be like those who turned away from Jesus when the pressure came. Andronicus and Junia didn't flinch, and they're honored forever in Scripture because of it. Jesus says, if you're not ashamed of him or his words, he will not be ashamed of you before his Father in heaven. But if you are, he'll be ashamed of you, too. And if you're a Christian, it's because Jesus was not ashamed to own you, not ashamed to come and share the bloodline of a prostitute and of incest and of Gentiles not ashamed to own all of you and all of your ugliness and sin and weakness and guilt and shame and to take all of that on himself and to suffer the punishment that you deserve. So don't be ashamed of him. And that doesn't have to be some big thing that's coming down the line, right? There are all kinds of ways, little ways every day where we're tempted to hide who we are and to hide who our king is. These are the little tests and the little opportunities to be faithful, the little ones that prepare us for the big ones that are ahead of us when things get harder. Okay, now let's talk about Andronicus and Junia just a little bit more. Uh, Some of you, if you have your Bible open, will have a note that says something like this, an alternate translation. They are outstanding among the apostles. That particular way of translating this passage implies that Andronicus and Junia have some kind of apostolic gifting. What does that mean? What would that mean? Apostolic gifts are beyond the gifts of a normal pastor. They're more like gifts of leadership, the ability to lead leaders, the ability to pastor pastors, to lead the church at large, that sort of thing. So if you have two people and their names are androgynous, and it could be that Paul's saying they're apostles or they have apostolic gifts— What's going to go on? What are people going to say? See? You see? We've got women in ministry here. In similar cases made about Phoebe too, where deaconess is used. Deacon just means servant. We're deaconess because she's a woman. It's used. We've got a deaconess and we've got women apostles right here in the book of Romans. We got women in ministry, we got women leading, doing ministry work. Oh no, or oh yes, what do we do? What do we say about that? You ready for my answer? Duh. And so what? Of course there are women in ministry. We all minister to one another we already have in this passage women who are listed as servants of the church. We have a ministry couple who are responsible for teaching Apollos the gospel. And you can imagine how that would have happened, right? If you came over to my house and you sat at my table and we had family devotions, we start talking about scripture, guess who's going to be part of the conversation and have things to say that are helpful and instructive? Amanda. It would be weird if she didn't, right? would. The Bible could have said that Aquila instructed Apollos while Priscilla remained quiet. And it didn't. It said Priscilla and Aquila did. Here it is in Acts 18. He, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So what? Does it change anything? It doesn't. It changes nothing because there's still an order to the world and how God made it. There's still an order to how God designed things to work. And that order still informs our homes and shapes how men serve the church and how women serve the church and they're different. And that's not something we have to try to extrapolate from this little passage in Romans. The teaching is clear in other places. Serving as elders and deacons and holding an official ordained office, teaching and exercising authority over men, That's ministry for men. The Bible explicitly forbids women to do it, period. It's clear, it's instruction. It's written down in black and white. Women serve the church in all kinds of ways. Of course they do. Clearly they're doing it here and Paul is commending them for it. But holding office? No. Teaching and exercising authority over men? No. It's equally clear. We don't need to negate the one to uphold the other. We don't need to swing from one pole to another. That's not how we reclaim a biblical vision of sexuality in the church. We don't need to twist this passage of scripture to say anything it doesn't say. Of course women serve the church because the church is a family. And of course men lead and have authority because that's what a family looks like. All good? Okay, now we've got, we've already been through a bunch of names so far, right? We're going to get a bunch more. As he goes, he's going to have less and less to say. So what I want to do now is just read through the rest of the names, okay? Because their names recorded in Scripture, we need to honor these people. Then I just want to look at the words that he uses to describe them. Okay? So picking up in verse 8. And... Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greek Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Okay, those are some fun names, right? A lot of really Greek-sounding names, a lot of Greek, God, Narcissus, and Hermes, and Olympus. That's pretty fun. What words, descriptions stand out to you guys? Dear friend, What else? Mother. Beloved. Beloved. Beloved multiple times, right? What else? Fellow Jews. Kinsmen. Wor- Sorry? Chosen in the Lord. That's a good one. How about workers or working? worked hard, fellow worker, workers in the Lord, beloved in the Lord, my beloved, approved, okay? Let's start with beloved. Beloved of Paul, beloved in the Lord, loved. And connected to that is chosen, right? These people are loved. Christianity is a religion of love, a a religion where love comes first, where God makes the first move. Before the foundation of the world, God loved us and chose us in him. When we were his enemies, God loved us and chose us. While we were dead in our sins and could do nothing, God loved us and chose us and gave us life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God endured thousands of years of sin and rebellion because he loved the world and wanted to send his son so that you and I might be his beloved. So that the riches of his love and mercy and grace might be on full display. And they're not simply here, though, beloved of God. They're also beloved of Paul. They're his beloved. It's personal for him. This is a shepherd and a pastor and an apostle and a missionary. And these are people that he loves. Do you have people that you look up to in the faith who would look at you and say, you're my beloved in the Lord? What would it take? God's a father. He tells us he loves us. Paul's a father. He tells his flock that he loves them. As a father, the most important thing you can do is make sure your kids know you love them and that you're proud of them. By design, out of the gate, every kid admires and respects their dad. It's the default setting. You come out as Superman. That's how we begin. And you have to work pretty hard to screw that up. And don't worry, right? We all do. You're going to. Eventually, the kids find out that you're actually Clark Kent. But they still want you to be Superman. And you know what they want from Superman? They want to hear two things. I love you and I'm proud of you. They're already mostly sensitive to your criticisms. Adjustments are still necessary, right? They'll test you. They'll need to be put in their place. But they care and they can't help but care because they want to please you. And unless you just straight up abandon them or become the kind of monster that can never be pleased or refuses to accept the offerings of your kids, that's not going to change. Sometimes as moms and dads, as grown men and women, we know how much it would mean to us for our own dads to stop and just say, I love you and I'm proud of you, right? If your dad's gone, if he's dead, if he's gone to be with the Lord, how much would you give to be able to tell him one more time how much you love him? And how much more would it mean to be able to hear from him one last time that he loves you and is proud of you? If your dad was never there, how much would it mean for him to tell you he's sorry? And that he loves you and he's proud of you and have him really mean it. No tricks. We all feel that as sons and daughters, right? Sometimes it's hard to connect the dots and realize that our kids feel the same way. We see and feel our failures. We feel like we don't live up to our own moms and dads. So we don't believe it could mean as much to our kids coming from us as it would to us coming from our parents. And it's not true. It's a lie. It's wrong. We're wrong. It does. It means everything. If you belong to God, God is your father and God loves you. And as your pastor, I love you. And I'm proud of you. And there's no church I'd rather be at. Some of you come from families where you didn't grow up feeling loved and you weren't beloved. And as painful as that is, if you belong to Jesus, something better has happened. And you need to learn to accept that. And you need to learn to embrace it and be healed by it because you've been adopted into God's household now and he is your father and he loves you. And in the household of God, you have a new family here. And here you're loved. You're loved by mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers who are not perfect in their love, but who have been loved by God and are growing in their love for each other. And that's what the church family is and should be. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. We're seeing just family. These are family greetings. Next to beloved, what else does Paul use to describe these brothers and sisters? Fellow workers? Workers in the Lord? Someone who has worked hard in the Lord? You know what the rule is in churches? They say that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. See, that was true when Paul wrote this letter. I'm not sure I believe that or that I want to. I think the church in America has come to accept that sort of thinking and to think that way because we don't see the church as a household. We see it as an entertainment company, a place to come and consume. We show up, we're entertained by the band, we're entertained by the message. Maybe it was helpful, maybe there were some helpful thoughts. We get to leave feeling a little bit better about ourselves or a little bit happier. But that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see is a household. You know what every household has? Chores. Chores. Did you jinx me on that? Good job. Chores. How many of you grew up in homes where you had chores? You're expected to be more than a passive participant who's clothed and fed, right? You're expected to pull your weight, to participate in the work of keeping the household moving. Food needs to be made. Dishes need to be done. Trash needs to be taken out. Floors need to be swept and cleaned. Beds don't make themselves. Yards need to be mowed. That's just life. It's tending to the thorns and thistles and the cares and concerns and the little things that keep everything going and keep it nice and keep it smooth and clean and running. The early church had this problem. They spotted it pretty early on. How many of you know the story of how we have the office of deacon? It wasn't that God said, Thou shalt have deacons what happened is the church in Jerusalem was gathering regularly and they had this beautiful thing where they were distributing all their possessions among the poor and everybody who had need. And the ones who had the most need were, of course, the widows and their kids. And there was a complaint. And the complaint was that some of the widows were getting passed over and neglected. Those that were not from Jerusalem. So everybody's gathered for a festival. And you have like the you know, the hometown crowd and you've got all the out-of-town crowd and there's a complaint that the widows from out-of-town are being passed over. And it came all the way up to the apostles and they're just like, guys, our job's to teach and preach. It's not right for us to be caught up in serving tables and making sure the food gets distributed evenly to everybody. Like we can't do everything. And they just, they say to the church, they don't even say this, just pick some men, go find some men, pick them and set them apart, faithful guys that you trust, to just handle this stuff. And the church was like, okay. And they set apart seven men. And that is how we have the office of deacon. Seven men set apart to take the work Of the church, off the plate of the apostles, the pastors and the elders of the church. So, who are gifted to be deacons? They're just people that you look around and see doing stuff, taking work off everyone's plate. They're the people that we depend on to make things work. They work hard, they're servants, they're dependable, they're trustworthy, they get things done. You don't want to be a consumer. Consumers aren't family members, at best, they're guests. You wanna be part of the family, and if you're part of the family, that means that you serve. Your heart's full of gratitude, so that serving and giving back and using the gifts God has given you becomes your joy and your delight. We're a church that's grown. We're a church that's growing. We wanna keep growing. One of the reasons that's been able to happen is because many of you are finding your place and using your gifts to serve. It's amazing to us when we talk about it and we step back and think just a year ago what things were like. Two years ago what things were like. It's beautiful. It's sweet. We want to serve more people. And to serve more people we need more people to serve. We want to serve more families and more kids we want to bring others in who can come and help lighten the load. And something that you're good at as a church. Beloved, workers. What else describes these people? How about this one? How about approved? This uh, dude, Apelles, he's the only one actually that Paul says is approved. Let's assume for a minute, too, that Paul just wasn't like, ah, I'm. I need a different word besides beloved and worker. I don't know, approved. Let's assume that he picked this word for this guy for a reason. Why would he say that this man is approved in Christ? I don't know the answer, but I I have two ideas. The first idea is this. Maybe the church at Rome didn't so much need to hear that Apollos is approved, but maybe Apollos did. One reason Paul might have chosen that word specifically for apelles is that because as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a father, he knew that apelles needed to hear that he was approved in Christ. Some of you have never heard that sort of thing before. You don't approve of yourself, you don't know why anybody could approve of you, much less the God of the universe. So you're tempted to live your life seeking for approval from your husband or your wife or your boss or your mom or your dad or from God. But what does the Bible say? It says that if you have confessed your sins to God, if you have come to Jesus and asked him to save you, then God approves of you already. He has placed his stamp of approval on you. He owns you. Then you're his beloved son or daughter. And nothing can take that away. And he doesn't just want you, he does not want you working for his approval. He doesn't want you working for it. He wants you clothed in the strength and in the confidence that comes from already having it. He doesn't want you to work for his approval. He wants you to work from it. Many of you have gone through life without approval, without the approval of your parents, maybe without the approval of your husband or your wife, And if you are approved in Christ, here's the truth. You don't need anybody else's approval. You don't need to live to please anybody. You're already pleasing to God. You don't need to make anyone happy because God is happy with you. So that's my first idea of why Paul might have said, Pallas is approved in Christ. Here's my second. Maybe that the church in Rome really did need to hear that Appellus is approved. What makes somebody approved? If you're approved, you've been proven. You've been tested. You've been through it. You've suffered. You've endured. You've been seen and noticed to have gone through some things and come out on the other side. Some of you have suffered and in your suffering, you've clung to Jesus and you've proven faithful. So Paul might also just be saying to this church, hey, listen, You might not know this dude very well, but I have seen his stripes. I have seen him suffer. I have seen his scars. And he is approved. Sometimes the scars of those who have served faithfully aren't obvious or evident. Sometimes we can find ourselves looking down on someone who has suffered more for Jesus than we would have ever imagined. It's good for someone to come along and say, hey, this dude's approved, he's legit, he's for real. He's more than he might seem. Hopefully soon, this church will be what we call particularized. All that means is that you'll look around and say, we want our own elders. We want our own deacons. We know the men that we see as leaders here. These are the men we approve of to lead us as our pastors. These are the men we approve of to lead us as elders. These are the men we approve of to lead us as deacons. We trust them. We approve of them representing us. Now let's stop and talk about three different people real quick, all together. Aristobulus, Narcissus, and Rufus and his mom. Those are some awesome names. Aristobulus and Narcissus appear to just be patriarchs. They have a godly family. They're in the church at Rome. Greet them and their family. They appear to be dads who lead and lead their families to Jesus. And then there's Rufus and his family. And this is really cool. And Paul doesn't make this connection here, but let me uh, read to you from Mark chapter 15 real quick. Okay, Mark 15 is the crucifixion of Jesus. They've just beaten him and put a cloak on him and they're about to take him out to the hill to crucify him. Okay, And they led him out to crucify him and they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So as Jesus is going, they grab some passerby named Simon of Cyrene. And he's the father of... These two dudes named Rufus and Alexander. Now, we don't know that this is the same Rufus, but most Bible scholars think this is probably the same Rufus. And part of the reason is what Paul says about Rufus' mom. Greet his mother who's been a mother to me. So we know that Paul knew his family. So what we think is that Rufus' dad, Simon, carried Jesus' cross. And it made an impression on the family. So his family became godly. And his sons clearly became leaders because there's no other reason for Mark to say, oh yeah, this is Simon, the father of Rufus and Alexander, right? The only reason Mark is going to make that note is that everybody knows who Rufus and Alexander are. They're leaders in the church that everybody should know. He's making a connection for the people who would have read it at the time. That's pretty cool. And Rufus's mom, the Apostle Paul says she's been a mother to me. What was her ministry in her old age? She never stopped being a mother, even to somebody like the Apostle Paul, and he honors her for that. We all need love, and we need more than just sisters and brothers, we need mothers and fathers. We're a young church. And those of you who are older often hear things like, I don't know what I have left to give. Paul needed, Paul was in his 60s, we think, about the time he wrote this letter. This woman had been a mother to him. He needed that. We need mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. And the kids of this church need to see faithfulness in old age. We all need examples of people who are ahead of us and we all need love. And what we're talking about with these three families, Aristobulus and Narcissus and Rufus's family and his mom is a legacy, a legacy of godliness. Aristobulus and Narcissus had families that honored the Lord and Rufus's family is a family that honored the Lord. And that fruit we see in the early church is already beginning to be multi-generational, We've got Rufus's mom, and we've got, you know, and maybe Simon. We've got Rufus and Alexander. And then we've got these households. It's a beautiful thing. Here this morning, there are multiple generations of families grandparents, and kids, and grandkids. It's a beautiful thing. We want to see that legacy grow from one generation to the next as God adopts and reconciles and restores and builds new families for himself. We trust God's promises when he says that he is faithful to the thousandth generation. So we, as a church, are committed to honoring families, to honoring fathers and mothers, to helping one another raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Okay. Last verse for this week. We'll wrap up Romans all together next week. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Okay, everybody stand up and give each other a kiss. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. There are lots of cultures where greeting with a kiss is normal, right? This ain't one of them. Has anybody been a part of a church that's tried to reclaim this practice? Sometimes it's sweet, sometimes it's awkward, sometimes it's beautiful. I'm not going to try to make us reclaim it, okay? (laughs) You're thankful, huh? That's good. What's non-negotiable, though, what's non-negotiable is warm, sincere affection. It's a cold world. So work for each other. Love each other. Be tender and affectionate with one another. Greet each other like family, with warmth and affection. Because in Jesus, that's what we are. We're family. And that love, if we embrace it, will be what shows the world that we really belong to Jesus. That we're really his. Okay, so this is a list of names. Ordinary people like you and me. And here's the final question. What's stopping you from being the kind of person that Paul would list here? Can you be a patron or a servant like Phoebe? Can you serve the church with your marriage like Priscilla and Aquila? How can you serve the church? Do you have courage or zeal, time, energy, money? Are you leaving a family legacy of faithfulness across multiple generations? This is just normal church. This is ordinary church for ordinary people. It's what it looks like. It's beautiful because it's family. Let's pray and ask God to make us like this. Father, we thank you that you work in ordinary people, that you stoop to us in our weakness and our sin, and that you use us. I pray that you would give us the humility, each of us to recognize what our gifts are and are not and that you would give us the love and the grace to put those gifts to work, to serve and build each other up. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.